Hello, and welcome back to the It Depends podcast. I am your host, Kevin Goldsmith. I am the author of It Depends, Writing on Technology Leadership 2012 to 2022. This is officially episode one, even though it's a second episode. I called the first episode episode zero because it was the introduction. This episode will probably be the longest one of uh, this series of podcasts, and that's because it's the longest chapter of the book. I'm going to give you chapter one of the book today. And if you read the newsletter, um, and if you don't, you should, please do, you'll see that in the newsletter, uh, the chapters are coming out of order. And in the podcast, the chapters are coming in order. And there's a very simple explanation for that. One is, well, obviously the books are already written, uh, so I can present them in any order I want, except as I'm recording this to you today in January of 2024, the audiobook is still being edited and it's being edited from beginning to end. So I can give you the uh, audiobook in order, even if I'm giving you the chapters out of order in the newsletter. And one of the reasons I give you the chapters out of order in the newsletter is because some of them are somewhat topical. The first newsletter was about preparing for the year. The next newsletter, which will be appearing uh, this week, depending on when you listen to the podcast, will have already appeared. The second newsletter, uh, which is appearing this week, if you're listening to this when, when the podcast is released, that will talk about, I haven't decided whether I'm going to give you the chapter on making a raise recommendation or the chapter on giving a performance review because for some people, they haven't made raise recommendations yet. For other people, they have, but they are about to do the, the performance review. I don't know. You'll, you'll, see. you'll see when you get it. Uh, if you haven't subscribed to the newsletter, please do. You can find it at kevingoldsmith.substack.com. Um, you can also find any links, obviously, in the show notes, but you'll also be able to find them from the itdependsbook.net website or less directly from kevingoldsmith.com. I'll give you a little bit of background about this chapter. This chapter is called Fail Safe, Fail Smart, Succeed. The chapter in the book is a sort of updated and edited version of a blog post that I did that came out in December of 2020. But that blog post was really uh, an interpretation, a written interpretation of a conference talk that I gave for many years. I probably will give it again someday, but it's been a couple of years since I've given it. And the talk is had variations of the same name over the years. I gave it over a dozen times. The first time I gave it was in November of 2015, where I was keynoting a conference, an internal conference for TomTom employees in Amsterdam. Uh, over the years, I gave it a bunch more times, often as keynotes. I think the the biggest time I gave it was either at, uh, I gave a version of this talk at the Lead Dev Conference in London in 2017. Um, I also gave this co- uh, this talk as a keynote talk at the JAX Conference in Mainz, Germany. Um, that is, a, if you haven't attended, it's a Java conference, is about 5,000 people, so it's a pretty big audience. It was a talk I'm particularly proud of. Um, I've also given it at internal conferences for Starbucks and for Zillow here in Seattle. Uh, It's a talk I'm very proud of because I think it encapsulates a lot of important ideas and important lessons I learned. When I wrote the talk, uh, 
I was still a VP at Spotify. And the things I talk about in this chapter really were very present. I talk about my biggest failure in this chapter as a leader. It's something that when I wrote this talk was very present. This was November of 2015. I was writing about, or I was talking about something that had happened in June of 2015. Over the years, and probably one of the reasons why I give it less frequently now is, it's you know that is now ancient history, but a lot of those lessons, and, and one of the reasons it's the first chapter of the book, a lot of those lessons I still carry with me, still very much inform uh, how I lead teams, how I think about software development. A lot of it came from, obviously, I was talking about Spotify primarily, although you know I'd worked a lot of places before Spotify, but Spotify was particularly good at, at some of these ideas. And really, this is a talk about lean. And it's a talk about experimentation. And it's a talk about how you handle failure. And that is, I think, one of the most critical ideas that we as leaders can do, how we how we handle failure, both our own and the failure of our teams, really defines us as a leader. Because, as I say in this chapter, and you'll hear me say again in a few minutes, failure is critical to innovation. If you're not failing, you're not really doing very much new, right? The only way to do a new thing is to fail. Before you learned how to ride a bicycle, you fell off a bicycle a whole bunch of times. It's really the same thing with software. If it's something that you can do without failing, it's it's something you already know how to do. You're not challenging. You're not innovating. In any case, before, before I give you a chapter, I will talk a little bit more on the other side of this, if you make it that far, I hope you do. I'll tell you a little bit more because this one is particularly interesting. I think just the process I used to actually write it, this chapter, this original article took me literally years to write, which is weird given that it was a talk I'd given many times and kind of knew off the top of my head because I tried to, I tried a new technique to write it, which did not work well at all for me. A lot of inside baseball you probably don't care about, so I'll tell you about it at the end if, if you listen through this whole podcast. Thanks to those who have already subscribed. Um, please encourage your friends. Share episodes. There's no ads. I have no intention of adding ads to this or to the newsletter or on the website. That's just not my intent. I've never put them on my blog. Again, you can also uh, read this if you don't want to listen to me read it to you. Um, you'll be able to read this in the book, clearly, which comes out in March, please. Uh, it should have pre-sales going up soon, and I'm looking forward to that. And I'll tell you more about that here when they're available and in the newsletter or on the website, itdependsbook.net. Please enjoy chapter one of It Depends, Writing on Technology Leadership 2012 to 2022. Fail Safe, Fail Smart, Succeed. Originally published on December 30th, 2020. The importance of failure in software development. How we approach failure is critical in any industry, but is especially crucial in building software. Why? The answer is simple. Invention requires failure. We don't acknowledge that fact enough as an industry, not broadly. It's something that we should recognize and understand more. Technologists continually look for ways to transform existing businesses or build new products. 
We are an industry that grows on innovation and invention. Real innovation is creating something uniquely new. If you can create something that is genuinely novel without failing a few times along the way, it probably isn't very innovative. As Albert Einstein said, anyone who has never made a mistake has never tried anything new. In his own words, Thomas Edison said that he created 3,000 theories before finding suitable materials for his electric light. Filmmaker Kevin Smith says, failure is success training. I like that sentiment. It frames failure as leading to success. Failure teaches you the things you need to know to succeed. Stated more strongly, failure is a requirement for success. Creating a fail-safe environment. To achieve success, what's important isn't avoiding failure. It is handling failure when it comes. The handling of failure makes the difference between eventual success and never succeeding. Creating conditions conducive to learning from failure means creating a fail-safe environment. In the software industry, we used to define a fail-safe environment as an environment with many processes to avoid failure. Instead, we should ensure that when the inevitable failure happens, we will handle it well and reduce its impact. We want to fail smart. When I was at Spotify, a company that worked hard to create a fail smart environment, we described this as minimizing the blast radius. This quote from Mikael Kranz, the head architect at Spotify during that time, sums up the idea nicely. We want to be an internal combustion engine, not a fuel air bomb. Many small controlled explosions propelling us in a generally okay direction, not a huge blast leveling half the city. So let us plan for failure. Let's embrace the mistakes that will come in the most thoughtful way possible. Then we can use those failures to move us forward and ensure that they are small enough not to take out the company. I like the combustion engine analogy because it embraces that a well-handled failure still pushes us in the right direction. If we anticipate, we can course correct and continue to move forward. One way to create these small controlled explosions is to fail fast. Find the fastest, most straightforward path to learning. Can you validate your idea quickly? Can you reduce the scope so that you can get it in front of real people immediately and get feedback before investing in a bunch of work? A side benefit of small failures is that they are easier to understand. You can identify what happened and learn from it. With a big failure, you must unpack and dig in to know where things went wrong. The lesson of Clippy. Even if you've never used the Office Assistant feature of Microsoft Office, you are likely aware of it. It was a software product flop so massive that it became a part of pop culture. I worked at Microsoft when the company created Office Assistant. Although I didn't work on that team, I knew a lot of people who did. It is easy to think that the Office Assistant was a horrible idea created by a group of poor performing developers and product people, but that couldn't be further from the truth. Clippy was built by highly talented developers, product leads, researchers with fantastic track records, and PhDs from top-tier universities. People who thought that they understood the market and their users. These world-class people were working on one of, if not the, most successful software products of all time, at the apex of its popularity. Microsoft spent millions of dollars and many person years on the development of Clippy. What happens is that these brilliant people were wrong, very wrong, as all of us are from time to time. How could they have found their mistake before releasing widely? It wasn't easy at the time to test product assumptions. It was much harder to validate hypotheses about users and their needs then compared to today. How we used to release software. Before we could assume high bandwidth internet connections, we wrote and shipped software in a very different way. Software products were manufactured, transcribed onto plastic and foil disks. 
For release like Microsoft Office, those disks were manufactured in countries worldwide, put into boxes, and then put onto trucks and trains and shipped to warehouses, like TV sets. From there, trucks would take them to stores where people would purchase them in person, take them home, and spend an afternoon swapping the disks in and out of their computers installing the software. With a release like Office, Microsoft would need massive disk pressing capability. It required dozens of CD and DVD plants across the world to work simultaneously. That capability had to be booked years in advance. Microsoft would pay massive sums to take over the capacity of the entire CD and DVD pressing industry. This monopolization of disk manufacturing required a fixed duration. Moving or growing that window was monstrously expensive. It was challenging to validate a new feature in that atmosphere, particularly if it was a significant part of a release that you didn't want to leak to the press. That was then, this is now. Today, the world is very different. There's no excuse for not validating your ideas. You can now deploy your website every time you hit save in your editor. You can ship your mobile app multiple times per week. You can try ideas almost as fast as you can think of them. You can try and fail, learn from the failure, and improve your product continuously. There's a quote from Thomas J. Watson. If you want to increase your success rate, double your failure rate. Thomas Watson was the CEO of IBM from 1914 to 1956. If it takes you years and millions of dollars to fail, and if you want to double that, your company will not survive to see eventual success. Failing fast minimizes the impact of your failure, by reducing the cost and delay in learning. I worked at an IBM research lab a long time ago. I was a developer on a project building early versions of synchronized streaming media. After over a year of effort, we arranged to publish our work. As we prepared, we learned that two other IBM labs were working on the same problems. Our work was complete. It was too late to collaborate. At the time, it seemed to me like big company stupidity, not realizing that three different teams were working on the same thing. Later, I realized that this was a deliberate choice. It was how IBM failed fast. Since it took too long to fail serially, IBM had become good at failing in parallel. Building a fail-safe culture. If innovation requires failure to build an innovative product or company, how your culture handles the inevitable failures is key to creating a fail-safe environment. Many companies still punish projects or features that do not succeed. The same companies then wonder why their employees are so risk-adverse. Punishing failure can take many forms, both obvious and subtle. For example, punishment can mean firing the team or the leader who created an unsuccessful release or project. Sanctions can be more subtle, moving resources away from innovative efforts that don't yield immediate successes, allowing people to ridicule failed efforts, Continuing to invest in the slow, steady growth projects instead of the more innovative but risky efforts. The innovator's dilemma is just the most well-known aspect of this. Breeding innovation out. I spent several years working at a company whose leadership constantly encouraged employees to be more innovative and take more risks. It created ever new incentives to incite new products from the organization. It was also a company that had consistently grown through acquisition. Every year, it would acquire new companies. At the start of the following year's budget process, there would inevitably be the realization that the company had grown too large. Nearly every year, there would be a layoff. Where would you look if you were a senior leader and need to trim 10% of your organization? 
In previous years, you likely had already eliminated your lowest performers. Should you reduce the funding of your products that bring in your revenue or kill the new products struggling to make their first profit? The answer is clear if your bonus and salary depend on hitting revenue targets. No matter what the intentions of the company were through its actions, it communicated that taking risks was detrimental to a career. So the company lost its most entrepreneurial employees through voluntary or involuntary attrition. Because it could not innovate within, innovation could only happen through acquisitions, perpetuating the cycle. If you overtly or subtly punish failure, and failure is necessary for innovation, then you are disincentivizing innovation. Don't punish failure. Punish not learning from failure. Punish failing big when you could have failed small first. Better yet, don't punish at all. Instead, reward the failures that produce essential lessons for the company that the team handles well. Reward risk-taking if you want to encourage innovation. If you worry about employees taking risks without accountability, give them participation in the revenue that they bring in. Each failure allows you to learn many things. Take the time to learn those lessons. Learning from failure. It can be hard to learn the lessons from failure. When you fail, your instinct is to move on, to sweep it under the rug. You don't want to wallow in your mistakes. However, if you move on too quickly, you miss the chance to gather all the lessons, leading to more failure instead of the success you seek. Lessons from failure, your process. Sometimes the failure was in your process. The following exchange is fictional, but I've heard something very much like it more than once in my career. Well, the test team was working on a different project, so they jumped onto this one late. We didn't want to delay the release, so we cut the time for testing short and didn't catch those issues. We had test automation, and it caught some of the issues, but there were a lot of false positives, so no one was watching the results. Did we do a beta test for this release, an employee release? No. The above conversation indicates a problem with the software development process, and for this specific example, a culture of quality problem. If you ever had an exchange like this one, what did you do to solve the underlying issues? If the answer is not much, you didn't learn enough from the failure, and you likely continue to have similar problems afterward. Lessons from failure. Your team. Sometimes your team is a significant factor in a failure. I don't mean the group members aren't good at their jobs. Your team may be missing a skill set or have personality conflicts. Trust may be an issue within the team, so people aren't open with each other. Well, we inherited this component that uses this data store, and no one on the team understands it. So we're learning as we do it, and it's become a performance problem. Suppose the above exchange happened in your team. In that case, you might make sure that the next time you decide to use or inherit a technology, you make sure that someone on the team knows it well, even if that means adding someone to the team. Lessons from failure. Your perception of your customers. A vein of failure, and a significant one in the lessons of Clippy, is having an incorrect mental model for your customer. We all have myths about who our customers are. Why do I call them myths? The reason is that you can't precisely read the minds of every one of your customers. At the beginning of a product's life cycle, when there are few customers, you may know each of them well. That condition, hopefully, will not last very long. How do you build a model of your user? First, you do user research, talk to your customer service team, beta test, and read app reviews and tweets about your product. 
Next, you read your product forms. Finally, you instrument your app and analyze user behavior. We have many ways of interacting with subsets of our customers. These interactions give us the feeling that we know what they want or who they are. These exchanges provide insights into your customers as an aggregate. They also fuel myths about who your customers are because they're a sampling of the whole. We can't know all our customers, so we create personas in our minds or collectively for our team. Suppose you have a great user research team and are rigorous in your efforts to understand your customers. You may be able to have in-depth knowledge about your users and their needs for your product. However, that knowledge and understanding will be transitory. Your product continues to evolve and change and hopefully add new users often. Your new customers come to your product because of the unique problems they can solve using it. These problems differ from existing users. Your perception of your customers ages quickly. You are now building for who they were, not who they are. Lessons from failure, your understanding of your product. You may think you understand your product. After all, you're the one who's building it. However, the product your customers are using may differ from the product you are making. You build your product to solve a problem. In your effort to solve that problem, you may also solve other problems for your customers that you didn't anticipate. Your customers are delighted that they can solve this problem with your product. In their minds, this was a deliberate choice on your part. Now you make a change that improves the original problem solution but breaks the unintended use case. Your customers are angry because you ruined their product. Lessons from failure. Yourself. Failure gives you a chance to learn more about yourself. Is there something you could do differently next time? Did an external factor become obvious in hindsight that could have been detected earlier if you'd approached things differently? Our failures tend to be the hardest to dwell on. Our natural inclination is to find fault externally to console ourselves. Instead, it is worth taking some time to reflect on your performance. You will always find something you can do that will help you the next time. Collecting the lessons, project retrospectives. The best way that I have learned to extract the lessons is to do a project retrospective. A project retrospective aims to understand what happened in the project from its inception to its conclusion. You may want to understand each critical decision, what informed the decision, and its outcome. In a project retrospective, you are looking for the things that went wrong, the things that went well, and the things that went well but you could do better next time. The output of the retrospective is neutral. It is not for establishing blame or awarding kudos. Instead, it exists to make sure your team learns. For this reason, it is helpful for both unsuccessful and highly successful projects. A good practice for creating great culture around failure is to make it the general custom to have retrospectives at the end of every project in your company. Having a retrospective only for unsuccessful projects perpetuates a blame culture. The Project Retrospective Repository Since the project retrospectives are blameless, it is good to share them within your company. Create a project retrospective repository and publicize it. The repository becomes a precious resource for everyone in your company. It shows what has worked and what has been challenging in your environment. It allows your teams to avoid making the mistakes of the past. We always want to be making new mistakes, not old ones. The repository is also handy for new employees to teach them how projects work within your company. Finally, it is also a resource for documenting product decisions. The retrospective repository is a valuable place to capture your product's history and process. Spotify's fail-safe culture. I learned a lot about creating a failure-safe culture while working at Spotify. Some of the great examples of this culture were 
a fail wall, a whiteboard with sticky notes of lessons. One of the squads created a fail wall to capture the things that they were learning. The squad didn't hide the wall. Instead, it was on a whiteboard facing the hallway where everyone could see it. Google document of project retrospectives. This document is a report from one of the project retrospectives. You don't need any special software for the record. Uh, For us, it was a collection of Google Docs in a shared folder. A fail wall Slack channel. One of the Agile coaches created a Slack channel for teams to share the lessons learned from failures with the whole company. Celebrate failures blog post. Spotify CTO posted an article encouraging everyone to celebrate the lessons they learned from failure, which inspired other posts like this. A Spotify engineering blog post called How a Postgres Upgrade Can Take More Than Two Months. If you look at the Spotify engineering blog, there are probably more posts about mistakes than the cool things we did in the years I worked there, 2013 to 2016. These kinds of posts are also valuable to the community. When you're searching for something, is because you're having a problem. We might have had the same issue. These posts are very public expressions of the company culture. Failure as a competitive advantage. We're all going to fail as we attempt to innovate. If my company can fail smart and fast, learning from our mistakes, while your company ignores the lessons from failure, my company will have a competitive advantage. Making failure safer. How do we reduce the fuel-air bomb failure into an internal combustion failure? How can we fail safely? Minimizing the cost of failure. If you fail quickly, you are reducing the cost in time, equipment, and expenses. At Spotify, we used a framework rooted in Lean Startup to reduce the cost of our failures. We named the framework Think It, Build It, Ship It, Tweak It. There's a graph here that shows gradual growth through a section called Think It, then much faster growth through a section called Build It, then again a bit gradual growth through Ship It, and then a linear decline through a section called Tweak It. This graph shows investment into a feature over time through the different phases of the framework. Investment here signifies people's time, material costs, equipment, opportunity costs, whichever. Think it. Imagine this scenario. You're a developer returning from lunch with some people you work with, and you have an idea for a new feature. You discuss it with your product owner, and they like the idea. So you decide to explore if it would be a valuable feature for the product. You now have entered the think it phase. During this phase, you may work with the product owner and potentially designer. This phase represents a part-time effort by a small subset of the team, a small investment. You might create a paper prototypes to test the idea with the team and customers. You may develop some lightweight code prototypes. You may even ship a very early version of the feature to some customers. The goal is to test as quickly and cheaply as possible and gather objective data on the feature's viability. You build a hypothesis on how the feature can positively impact the product, tied to real product metrics. This hypothesis is what you will validate against each stage of the framework. If the early data shows that the customers don't need or want the feature, your hypothesis is incorrect. You have two choices. You may iterate and try a different permutation of the concept, staying in the think it phase and keeping the investment low. You may decide it wasn't as good an idea as you hoped and end the effort before investing further. If you decide to end during the think it phase, congratulations, you've saved the company time and money building something unnecessary. Collect the lessons in a retrospective and share them so everyone else can learn. Build it. The initial tests look promising. The hypothesis isn't validated, but the indicators warrant further investment. You have some direction from your tests for the first version of the feature. Now is the time to build the feature for real. 
The investment increases substantially as the rest of the team gets involved. How can you reduce the cost of failure in the build-it phase? First, you don't build the fully realized conception of the feature. Instead, you develop the smallest version that will validate your initial hypothesis, the MVP, or minimum viable product. Your goal is validation with the broader customer set. The build-it phase is where many companies I speak to get stuck. If you have the complete product vision in your head, finding a minimal representation seems like a weak concept. Folks in love with their ideas have difficulty finding the core element that validates the whole. Suppose the initial data that comes back for the MVP puts a hypothesis into question. In that case, it is easier to question the validity of the MVP than to examine the hypothesis's validity. This issue of MVP is usually the most significant source of contention in the process. It takes practice to figure out how to formulate a good MVP, but the effort is worth it. Imagine if the Clippy team had been able to ship an MVP. Better early feedback could have saved many person years and millions of dollars. In my career, I've spent years, literally, building a product without shipping it. Our team's leadership shifted product direction several times without validating or invalidating any of their hypotheses in the market. We learned nothing about the product opportunity, but the development team learned much about refactoring and building modular code. Even during the build-it phase, there are opportunities to test the hypothesis. Early internal releases, beta users, user tests, and limited A-B tests can all be used to provide direction and information. Ship it. Your MVP is ready to release to your customers. The validation with the limited release pools and the user testing shows that your hypothesis may be valid. Time to ship. In many companies, if not most, shipping a software release is still a binary thing. No users have it, and now all users have it. This approach robs you of an opportunity to fail cheaply. Your testing in Thinkit and Buildit may have validated your hypothesis. However, it may have also provided incorrect information, or you may have misinterpreted it. On the technical side, whatever you have done to this point will not validate that your software performs correctly at scale. Instead of shipping instantly to 100% of your users, do a progressive rollout. At Spotify, we have the benefit of a massive scale. This scale allowed us to ship to 1%, 5%, 10%, 25%, 50%, and then 99% of our users. We usually held back 1% of our users as a control group for some time. Due to our size, we could do this rollout relatively quickly while maintaining statistical significance. If you have a smaller user base, you can still do this with fewer steps and get much of the value. At each rollout stage, we'd use product analytics to see if we were validating our assumptions. Remember that we always tie the hypothesis back to product metrics. We'd also watch our systems to ensure that they were handling the load appropriately and had no other technical issues or bugs arising. If the analytics showed that we weren't improving the product, we had two decisions again. Should we iterate and try different permutations of the idea, or should we stop and remove the feature? Usually, if we'd reached this point, we would iterate, keeping to the same percentage of users. If this feature MVP wasn't adding to the product, it took away from it. So rolling out further would be a bad idea. This rollout process was another way to reduce the cost of failure. It reduced the percentage of users seeing a change that may negatively affect product metrics. Sometimes, iterating and testing with a subset of users would give us the necessary information to move forward with a better version of the MVP. Occasionally, we would realize that the hypothesis was invalid. We would then remove the feature, which is just as hard to do as you imagine, but it was more comfortable with data validating the decision. If we had removed the feature during the ship it phase, we would have wasted time and money. 
However, we would still have squandered less than if we'd released a lousy feature to our entire customer base. Tweak it. You have now released the MVP for the feature to all your customers. The product metrics validate the hypothesis that it is improving the product. You are now ready for the next and final phase. Tweak it. There's another version of the graph here. It's a copy of the first, but with a shaded area. And the shaded area is under that gradual investment in Thinkit, the rapid increase in investment during build it, and then the continuing investment during ship it. And that area is shaded. And then the decreasing area under tweak it is not. The shaded area under this graph shows the investment to get a feature to customers. Until you realize the feature to all your customers, you will not earn anything against the investment. Until that point, you are just spending resources. The Think It, Ship It, Build It, Tweak It framework aims to reduce that shaded area and the investment amount before you start seeing a return. The MVP does not realize the full product vision and the metrics may be positive, but not to the level of your hypothesis. There is a lot more opportunity here. The result of the Ship It phase represents a new baseline for the product and the feature. The real-world usage data, customer support, reviews, forums, and user research can now inform your next steps. The Tweak It phase represents a series of smaller Think It, Build It, Ship It, Tweak It efforts. From now on, your team iteratively improves the shipped version of the feature and establishes new, better baselines. These efforts will involve less and less of the team over time, and the investment will decrease correspondingly. When iterating, occasionally you reach a local maximum. Your tweaks will result in smaller and smaller improvements to the product. Once again, you have two choices. Move on to the next feature or look for another substantial opportunity with the current feature. The difficulty is recognizing that there may be much bigger opportunity nearby. When you reach this decision point, it may be beneficial to try a big experiment. On the other hand, you may also take a step back and look for an opportunity that may be orthogonal to the original vision, but could provide a significant improvement. You notice in the graph that the investment never reaches zero. This gap reveals the secret hidden fifth step of the framework. Maintain it. Even if there's no active development on a feature, it doesn't mean that there isn't any investment. The feature takes up space in the product, hogging valuable UI real estate and making it harder to add other new features. The code may be prone to breaking with library or system updates and will be the source of user-reported bugs. Maintaining documentation as the product evolves is also a burden. This investment cost means that it is critical to not add features to a product that do not demonstrably improve it. There is no such thing as a zero-cost feature. Suppose new functionality adds nothing to the product in terms of incremental value to users. In that case, the company must invest in maintaining it. Features that bring slight improvements to core metrics may not be worth preserving, given the additional complexity they add. Expect failure all the time. There is a substantial difference in how we discuss failure in the context of software development from the year 2000 compared to today. Back then, you worked hard to write robust software, but there was an expectation of hardware reliability. So when a hardware failure occurred, the software's fault tolerance was of incidental importance. Of course, you didn't want to cause errors yourself, but if the platform wasn't stable, there wasn't much you were expected to do about it. Today, we live in a world with public clouds and mobile platforms where the environment is entirely beyond our control. Amazon's web services platform taught us a lot about handling system failure. A blog post from Netflix about their move to AWS was pivotal to the industries adapting to the new world. 
The blog post discusses how Netflix had to change their perception of how services worked because infrastructure-as-a-service platforms like AWS work very differently to traditional corporate data centers. Netflix's approach to system design has been so beneficial to the industry. We now assume that everything can be on fire all the time. You could write perfect software and the scheduler would still come and kill it on mobile. AWS will kill your process and your service will be moved from one pod to another without warning. We now write our software expecting failure to happen at any time. We've learned that writing large systems complicates handling failure. And one of the reasons microservice architectures have become more prevalent is to help us be failure safe. Why? Because they are significantly more fault tolerant and they fail small when they fail. Products like Amazon, Netflix, and Spotify all have large numbers of services running. A customer doesn't notice if one or more instances of the services fail. When a service fails in those environments, it is responsible for a small part of the experience. The other systems assume it can fail. There are things like caching to compensate for a system disappearing. Netflix has its famous chaos monkey testing, which randomly kills services or even entire availability zones in their production environment. These tests make sure that their systems fail well. An architecture composed of smaller services that are assumed to fail means that there is near zero user impact when there is a problem. Therefore, failing well is critical for these services and their user experience. Smaller services also make it possible to use DevOps techniques such as progressive rollout, feature flags, dark launching, blue-green deploys, and canary instances, making it easier to build in a fail-safe way. My biggest failure. If you are a longtime Spotify user, you probably won't recognize the feature I'm describing. In May of 2015, though, Spotify was very interested in telling the whole world about it. It was a new set of features in the product called Spotify Now. I led the engineering effort at Spotify on the Spotify Now set of features. It was the most extensive concerted effort that Spotify had done to that time, involving hundreds of employees worldwide. Spotify Now is a set of features built around bridging the perfect personalized music for every user in every moment of the day. This effort included adding video, podcasts, a running feature, a massive collection of new editorial and machine learning generated playlists, and a simplified user interface for accessing music. It was audacious for a reason. We knew that Apple would launch its Apple Music streaming product soon. So we wanted to make a public statement that we were the most innovative platform. Our goal was to take the wind out of Apple's sails. Given that this was Spotify, we understood how to fail smart. As we launched the project, I reviewed the project retrospective repository. I wanted to see what had and had not worked on large projects before. With that knowledge, I was now prepared to make all new mistakes instead of repeating the ones from the past. We had a tight timeline, but some features were already in development. I felt confident. However, there was a growing concern as we moved forward and the new features started to take shape in the employee releases. We worried the new features wouldn't be as compelling as the vision we had for them. We knew that we as employees were not the target users of Spotify now. We were not representative of our users. To truly understand how the functionality would perform, we wanted to follow our usual product development methods and get the features in front of real customers to validate our hypotheses. Publicly releasing the features to a narrow audience was a challenge at the time. The press, aware of Apple's impending launch, closely watched every Spotify release. They knew that we tested features and were looking for hints of what we would do to counter Apple. Our marketing team wanted a big launch event. This release was a statement. 
We wanted a massive spike in Spotify's press coverage, extolling our innovation. The response would be muted if Spotify now leaked before the event. There was pressure from marketing not to test the features, but product engineering wanted to follow our standard validation processes. Eventually, we found a compromise. We released early versions of Spotify Now to a relatively small cohort of New Zealand users. Then, satisfied that we were now testing the features in the market, we went back to building and preparing for the launch while we were waiting for the test results. After a few weeks, we got fantastic news. Our cohort's retention was 6% higher than the rest of our customer base. Customer retention is the most critical metric for a subscription-based product like Spotify. It determines the lifetime value of the customer. The longer you use a subscription product, the more money the company will make. With a company of the scale of Spotify, it was tough to significantly move a core metric like retention. A whole point percentage move was rare and something to celebrate. With Spotify now, we had a 6% increase. It was a massive result. Now, all our doubt was gone. We knew we were working on something exceptional. Finally, we'd validated it in the market with real people. On the launch day, Daniel Eck, Spotify's CEO and founder, Gustav Soderstrom, the chief product officer, and Rochelle King, the head of Spotify's design organization, shared a stage in New York with famous musicians and television personalities. They walked through everything we had built. It was a lovely event. Simultaneously, I shared a stage in the company's headquarters in Stockholm with Shiva Rajamaran and Dan Sormas, my product and design peers. We watched the event with our team celebrating. As soon as the event concluded, we started the rollout of the new features by releasing them to 1% of our customers in our four most significant markets. We'd begun our ship it phase. We drank champagne and ate princess torta, my favorite Swedish cake. I couldn't wait to see how the features were doing in the market. After so much work, I wanted to start the progressive rollout to 100%. Daily, I would stop by the desk of the data analyst who monitored the metrics. He sent me away for the first couple of days with the comment, it is too early still. We're not even close to statistical significance. Then one day, instead, he said, it is still too early to be sure, but we're starting to see the trend take shape, and it doesn't look like it will be as high as we'd hoped. Every day after, his expression became dourer. Finally, it was official. Instead of the 6% increase we'd seen in testing, the new features produced a 1% decrease in retention. It was a 7% difference between what we'd tested and what we'd launched. Not only were our new features not enticing customers to stay longer on the platform, we were driving them away. To say that this was a problem was an understatement. It was a colossal failure. Now we had an enormous quandary. We'd fail big instead of small. We'd release several things together, so finding the problem was challenging. Additionally, we just had a major press event where we talked about all the features. There was coverage all over the internet. The whole world was now waiting to access what we'd promised, but we would lose customers if we rolled them out further. Those results began one of the most challenging summers of our lives. First, we had to narrow down what was killing our retention in these new features. Then we had to start generating new hypotheses and running tests within our cohort to find out what had gone wrong. The challenge was that the cohort was too small to run tests quickly, and it was shrinking daily as we lost customers. Eventually, we had to do the math to determine how much money the company would lose if we expanded the cohort so our tests would run faster. The cost was determined to be justified, so we grew the testing cohort to 5% of our users in our top four markets. Gradually, we figured out what in Spotify now was causing the users to quit the product. So we removed those features and we were able to roll out the remainder of the capabilities to the rest of the world with more modest retention gains.
in the many retrospectives that followed to understand what mistakes we'd made and what we'd done correctly, we found failures in our perceptions of our customers, our teams, and other areas. It turns out that one of the biggest problems was a process failure. We had a bug in our A-B testing framework. That bug meant that we'd accidentally rolled out our Spotify Now test to a cohort participating in a very different trial. A trial to establish a floor on what having no advertising in the free product would do for retention, essentially giving our premium product away for free. To Spotify's immense credit, instead of punishing me, my peers, and the team, we were rewarded for how we handled the failure. The lessons we learned from the mistakes of Spotify Now were immensely beneficial to the company. Moreover, those lessons produced some of the company's triumphs in the years that have followed, including Spotify's most popular curated playlists, Discover Weekly, Release Radar, Daily Mixes, and Podcasts. Putting this into practice at Avo. If you think you would like to use these ideas at your company but are unsure where to start, I'll describe what we did at Avo. I joined the company as CTO after I left Spotify. When I joined, the company was already nine years old. It had a primarily monolithic architecture running in a single data center with minimal redundancy. We did some things quickly to move to a more fail-safe world. Moving from planning around objectives to planning around priorities. First, we worked to build a supportive culture that could handle the inevitable failures better. We moved from planning around specific deliverable commitments to organizing our work around priorities. Suppose my specific achievements, my output, measure my performance. This way of measuring performance often creates problems. Suppose I need to coordinate with another person and their commitments do not align with mine. That situation will create tension. If the company's needs change, but my obligations do not, there is little incentive for me to reorient my work. Dependencies can thwart me from achieving my commitments or I may need to hamper the company's priorities to achieve my own if they are not well aligned. People in leadership like quarterly goals or management by objectives because they create strict accountability. If I commit to doing something and is not complete when I say it will be, I have failed even if it is no longer the right thing for me to do. Suppose you think instead about aligning around priorities. In that case, those priorities may change from time to time. Still, if everyone is working against the same set of priorities, you can be sure that they are broadly doing the right things for the company. Aligning to priorities sets an expectation of outcome, not output. Talk about failure with an eye to future improvement instead of blame. The senior leadership team must be in alignment with these approaches. The rest of the organization may not be initially. Leaders must communicate with a learning message rather than blame or punishment when discussing failure. People should know that the expectation is that they may fail. If they primarily try to avoid failure, they probably aren't thinking big enough. It is the message, we want to see you fail small, and we want to make sure that we learn from that failure. I created our Fail Wall Slack channel to share the lessons from our failures. I sent a message to my organization, making it clear that I don't expect perfection. I shared my vision that we become a learning organization in town halls and one-on-ones. Fail-safe architecture. Monoliths are natural when building a new company or when you have a small team. Monoliths are simple to make and more straightforward to deploy when you don't have multiple teams building together. As the code base and organization grow, microservices become a better model. It is critical to recognize when a monolith is becoming a challenge instead of an enabler. Microservices require a lot more infrastructure to support them. 
In addition, the effort to transition from one architecture to another is significant, so it is best to prepare before the need becomes urgent. Avo had already started moving to a microservices architecture, but a lack of investment stalled the transition. So I increased investment in the infrastructure team. As a result, the team built tools that simplified creating, testing, monitoring, and deploying services. We then made rapid progress. We also redesigned our organization to leverage the reverse Conley maneuver, further accelerating the new architecture. You can build a fail-safe, fail-smart team. In every company, I use the lessons I've shared in this chapter to build a culture where teams can innovate and learn from their users. It manifests differently with each group, but each team adopting these ideas has improved business outcomes and employee satisfaction. Work with your peers to adopt some of these ideas. Start small and grow. The process of adopting these concepts mirrors the product development process you are working to build. If you decide it isn't a good fit for your company, you will have failed smart by failing small. I will leave you with a final thought from Henry Ford. Failure is simply the opportunity to begin again, this time more intelligently. So that was chapter one of It Depends, writing on technology leadership 2012 to 2022. The chapter is called, again, Fail Safe, Fail Smart, Succeed. I hope you liked it. I hope you learned something from it. If you have any questions, please send them into me in email, contact at itdependsbook.net. And I'd be very happy to answer them either in the newsletter or on the podcast or both. Very happy to do that. Please send me your questions. So a little bit more context here. Uh, one, I talk about Clippy. I was, uh, I, as I said in the chapter, I was an employee of Microsoft. I was actually working at Microsoft Research. So I wasn't working in the office team. Uh, I never worked in the office team. But uh, it turns out that there were a whole bunch of people at Microsoft Research working on Clippy. I was working in a different team. I was working on graphics and I was working on kind of virtual world stuff. Yes, believe it or not, in the mid-90s, Microsoft was working on virtual world stuff and I was part of that team. But some of my friends in research were working on Clippy. These were, again, I can't reiterate too many times, like really smart people really knew what they were doing, really made something that really sucked. But I feel for them. Um, all of them did much better things after. So, you know, it's, it's not the worst part of their careers. And again, I also think that it has a lot more to do, not with the ambition or the, the ideas. It's OpenAI is Clippy, right? OpenAI is a much, much better version of Clippy, but, but it is. like the, It comes from that lineage. It's solving the same problem with much, much better technology. But the important thing was they tried to do something audacious. They tried to do something innovative and they missed, but they couldn't figure out that they missed until they'd shipped it. And you couldn't ship any faster than two years back then because of, you know, CDs. So that's an important thing to know. And it's something I just want to repeat a little bit more than I did in the chapter. The other thing that I, I said I would talk about is a little bit about how this chapter is different from, from every other chapter in the book. And that is because I'd recorded this money multiple times as a, as a talk. 
uh, I had all this recording of me basically uh, speaking the content of this chapter. And by the way, uh, for this chapter in particular, because it started as a talk, you can hear or see shorter versions of this. They're linked from my website. So if you go to kevingoldsmith.com slash talks, you can find a list of all the talks I've given at conferences. Every talk that has a recording associated with it that's available, there's a link to it, including this talk. And there's, I think, three different uh, video recordings of me giving different variations of this talk, if you'd like to see it. It's also half an hour, so it's shorter, a more concise version. Because I had full-length versions of me giving this talk as well, I thought I would be very clever, and I would do a speech-to-text of me giving the conference talk and then use that transcription to just very, very easily turn it into a blog post. I have friends who write their blog posts that way. I am, as if you listen to the introduction, I am not a great writer. I am a better speaker. And so, or or I just prefer to, to speak instead of write. So I thought, oh, well, if this works out, this will be great. Um, a much easier way for me to write blog posts. That turned out to be lunacy, did not work at all. In fact, if there's anything more tedious than looking at a blank piece of paper and trying to figure out what to write. It's looking at pages and pages and pages of text that is transcription of you speaking, where you say um and er and, you know, all the things you've heard me in this podcast. You won't hear it in the audiobook because it's all edited out, but in this podcast, it's a little bit more natural, and so you hear it here. But I even edit out some of it is edited out here as well. So you can't imagine how much worse it is. But then looking at it in text is very dispiriting. And so for that reason, it ended up taking me literally two years from when I started that process to when I finished it. And it was only because I posted on Twitter that if I didn't release this blog post by the end of 2020, that I would, uh, I forget what I was going to, I was going to donate to a charity I found absolutely abhorrent, supporting ideas I didn't believe in at all. I don't honestly even remember which charity it was. You can find it on my Twitter feed if you want to look hard. But that that was my way of forcing myself to to finally publish this blog post. In any case, a weird, weird little detail that I get to give you in this medium because I don't think it's that it, it wouldn't make sense in the book. If you liked this chapter, if you liked the introduction, if you're interested in getting more from this book that covers a lot of the things I've learned, a lot of things I've written about um, in my path, moving from engineering manager, senior engineering manager, director, VP, CTO, now for multiple companies, please subscribe, please rate uh, this podcast in your favorite podcast app, please share it. Uh, send people to itdependsbook.net, which has links to the newsletter, links to this podcast. We'll also have the pre-sales links when they go up, and this book will be available from uh, all your your normal booksellers worldwide, or it will be available on Amazon and Kindle, paperback, hardback. It will also be available from bookshop.org, which will let you get DRM-free versions of the ebook for non-Kindle 
ebook devices, also paperback that you will also be able to order from your local bookshop. It'll also be available that way as well worldwide. So you can buy it from your local bookseller. You can buy it from Amazon. You can buy it online, however you want. And the audiobook will be available hopefully right around the same time as well. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening. Please, again, subscribe, rate, share episodes of this podcast on your favorite podcast app. Thanks again. I'll see you soon. Thanks to Answers to April for the music in this podcast. This podcast is a production of Unit Circle Media.